The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And uh, wherever this finds you, you know, May, June, a couple of my favorite months. I just love summer. I love spring. And wherever you are, unless, of course, you're in the Southern Hemisphere, then it's fall. Uh, I hope you're enjoying this day. And wherever you find yourself taking us on a run, on a ride, on a bike ride, in the car, doing dishes, making supper, or just hanging out and playing old listening to a podcast, welcome. Today's episode is brought to you by Leader. You can join the new leadership revolution. Matt Treseder and Chris Heeslip have a brand new book sharing the five foundations of leading developing teams. The book is called Management is Dead. You can get it at leader.com slash book. That's L-E-A-D-R.com slash book. And by Glue, there's a fundamental shift happening in culture right now. In a few minutes, we're going to talk about that with Brad Hill at Glue, and I want you to hear what he has to say. So today, our guest is Sherelle Jackson, and we're going to talk about toxic culture how to approach a toxic boss, how to change the culture in your organization without getting fired. I get this question all the time. It's like, I'm not the senior leader, but our culture is toxic. What do I do? Well, Sherelle has got the recipe for you. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And how do you build a 95% team retention rate? That's kind of crazy, but she's done it. She spent 25 years in the C-suite of accounting firms and fintech companies. Sherelle has served as the chief operations officer, chief financial officer, chief administrative officer, and she brings industry experience in fintech, manufacturing and distribution, nonprofits, professional services, real estate, construction, technology, and wealth management. She drives strategy, profit improvement, mergers and acquisitions, operational efficiency, and human capital development with the diversity of thought and inclusion top of mind all the way. So I think you're going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, I did. And hey, are you looking for your next must-read leadership book? Well, after building a billion-dollar company together, my friends Matt Treseder and Chris Heeslip learned a thing or two about the current pain points leaders today are facing, and they want to share a secret with you. It all ties back to the employee-manager relationship. They have a book coming out called Management is Dead, and they're sharing the five foundations of leading and developing teams in an era where the old forms of management just don't get it done and they don't work anymore. So if you're ready for a leadership revolution, be the first to get pre-sale information and special book-related updates by signing up at leader.com slash book. That's L-E-A-D-R dot com slash book. There's also a big shift happening in ministry and culture right now. So I sat down with Brad Hill, Chief Solutions Officer at Glue, and asked him what he's seeing and, well, whether there's a solution. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, Carrie, we talk a lot about the word connecting. It comes in different forms. If we look out right now, we're so connected. We're, we have access at our fingertips to information. In fact, we, we learned 81% of people are now more comfortable doing their own research, like seeking out answers, seeking out help. Um, but that has, a, has an underside to the church. We're actually, in many ways, more disconnected than we've ever been when we think about relationships. And as a pastor, if you're struggling with any sorts of issues, we would say a glue that the root of a lot of the challenges we see today in the church actually stem from this idea of disconnection. We just don't work that well together. We don't connect with other churches. It's tough to connect to content. We're always seeking more people that we can reach. So at Glue, we're thinking about fundamentally, how can we be the antidote to disconnection? 
We're helping churches reach more people, connect to content, even connect to funding in new ways. And so that's really at the heart of everything we do here at Glue. Curious to learn more and see how Glue is helping thousands of churches advance their mission? Go to glue.us slash reach. That's G-L-O-O dot U-S slash reach. And now, my conversation with Sherelle Jackson. Sherelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. It's great to have you. So you have become known in the corporate world. You spend a lot of time in accounting and in C-suites as a corporate fixer. So what does that mean? And how did you earn that reputation in business? Well, what it means is you're taking a holistic approach at the organization and solving the problems that keep the leaders up at night, whether Mm. it is growing the revenue at the top line or the net income at the bottom, whether it's helping them navigate through establishing processes and procedures, or more importantly, creating efficiency so that they can continue to grow over time. And most importantly, creating a culture where people can thrive and there's human capital development. And when you take that full approach at an organization, not only do you fix it, but you create longevity and overarching success on a sustainable basis. So I think based on that, that's how I've been coined as a corporate fixer. So how do you learn that though? Like a lot of people, particularly when they're starting out, they get a job, right? And your job is to do accounts receivable if you're in accounting or your job is to handle social media or whatever. And what you're talking about almost sounds like a CEO role, right? Which is obviously how you make it to the C-suite is you're doing more than your job description required. Is that your personality? Is that how you were born? Is that something you developed? Like how did you arrive with that panoramic view of problem solving? That's a great question. And I think it is probably a combination of both. I think that for me, innately, you have to care. And Mm. when you care about something, whether you're at work, at home or in the community, and you see an opportunity to contribute to the win, you naturally step in, even in some instances where you're uninvited. Now, you can gracefully bow out if your services are not wanted, but you never let a person run into a brick wall, as they say, when you see it ahead. And so I've always had that personality type where I've been willing to look out for other individuals' blind spots for the sake of saving that individual. And I think we all need that, right? I mean, I want somebody in my life that does that. And then, of course, when you go out and you obtain the skills and talents to be able to contribute to the win for all of us, it just allows us to be a more valuable player. But I believe it starts with care and then being willing to do the work and learn. So I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm going to disagree with you. I have seen more than a few people allow other coworkers to hit a a brick wall and they don't care about it. It's like, not my job. It's almost four o'clock. I'm off the clock. Is that your personality? Is that the way you were created? Was there something in your childhood? Is that what your mom or a mentor or, you know, like your background, like what, what was that? Or do you know? I believe it's because of my relationship with Jesus, but ultimately I do think it's how I was born. Mm. I've always been a person who cares. And I think the comparative is, in my opinion, those people, quite frankly, don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Don't care. And there are some of us who are selfish and some of us who are selfless. And I've naturally been a person 
who looked out for other people, whether I was an underdog or not. And Mm -hmm. so I guess the answer would be, I believe, especially as an adult, it's my relationship with Jesus and living my life in alignment with what I believe God has called us to do as servant leaders. But it's also as a small child, just the way that I was shaped and formed. And I think that's because of God as well. So I guess that's ultimately Mm. the answer. I was born that way. I think Jesus made me like that. Okay, I'm going to ask you uh, an out of left field question. And I had this conversation, I was in Tennessee recently, had a conversation, uh, my host for the event was from Romania and came over from Romania to California when I think he was born in California, but like Romanians all, all around him. Parents were Romanian, Romanian church and everything. We were talking one day when he was driving me to the event. And, you know, I'm a Dave Ramsey fan, but he said, you know, I I came to America, so to speak, and he's been to Romania a lot. And he said, Dave Ramsey says, you need to have three to six months in your emergency savings account, you know, one of the seven baby steps. And we've had Dave as a guest on here. And he said, that would never fly in Romania. I'm like, why not? Like, people don't have that much excess cash or they don't save or what? He goes, no. He says, it's cultural. And he said, if you were in trouble in Romania, it doesn't matter who you are. And the, he, he has, his parents grew up under an oppressive communist regime before the wall fell. He said, if you're in trouble in Romania, here's our culture. We got your back. We got your back. He says, you're not going to be out on the street. You're not going to be out on your own. We're going to cover you. And he says that translates into Romanian culture in America too. And I hope I never forget that. But, you know, I wonder if some of that is cultural where, you know, I'm going to look out for myself. Uh, any thoughts on that, whether that is a, a cultural thing or whether it has DEI implications or anything like that? I think it's a combination of it all, but I love to meet him because it's a principle by which I live and I've mm. raised my kings. But it's certainly, in my opinion, it's not the overarching culture of America. Nope. I do believe that um, it is. We are a more selfish um, country, nation. I believe that within our nation that it has become more and more every man for himself. But I do Mm -hmm. believe that there are cultures and um, specific individuals that do thrive in the we have your back. You know, as an African-American, that is our culture is Mm -hmm. we got you. In fact, I was speaking with someone the other day about I don't really care about anything. What I care about is that you're going to protect my well-being in my heart. And so culturally, there are Align, there is alignment with the we got your back uh, fundamental principle of life. And I think that within DEI, it's a requirement. And so that's why DEI has become so relevant, because there is an expectation of some generations that you should have my back. And um, mm. that's a cultural shift, I believe, in America. Yeah, that is. I want to talk about culture and I want to dive into that a little bit. We've had Sent Marshall on the podcast she is uh, really in charge of culture. She's CEO of the Dallas Mavericks and turned it from a highly toxic, sexist culture into a much more inclusive um, culture. First black CEO of an NBA franchise, first woman CEO, maybe first woman CEO. I, I've, I've got to check my facts on that. But anyway, how would you define culture? Like, as I said, you know, I think a lot of people look at it as oh, culture is a problem somewhere else, but but everybody has a culture, whether you know it or not. How do you define culture? What is culture? When I think about the culture, it's the interaction of the individuals within that particular society, how they operate together mm-hmm. and what the yield is. In other words, how it impacts their performance and their relationships. And that dictates the culture. 
So when you're thinking about an organization, a family, a friend group, the culture shows up based on what you see, their interactions, how they feel, how they communicate, how they interact with one another. And that creates the culture. And it, within organizations, that culture creation is based on the individuals that are a part of that organization. And then how they're showing up and the fundamental principles by which they are operating create the culture of the organization. And that's what's going to show up, whether it's toxic or not, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how would you assess your culture? Like, I think culture, everybody has one, even if you think we don't really have a culture. Yes, you do. You just don't know what it is. And it becomes like the fish swimming around in the water. After a while, you just don't notice the water. It's just normal. It's like humans don't think a lot about the air. And if there's a slight odor persistently in your neighborhood or in your house, eventually you just tune it out, right? You don't think about it anymore. So I'd love to know how can you reliably figure out what your culture is really like, how other people experience you? One of the things that I have learned and, and found that works in, you know, individuals that I've had the opportunity to interact with is you ask. And oftentimes mm. you do that in an anonymous way because people don't feel safe. And the fact that people don't feel safe is the first assessment. <laughs> <laughs> kind of culture that you have when people don't feel like they can really express how they really feel or what their experience is for the fear of retaliation. In many organizations, by doing assessments throughout the organization versus just at the top, like most of us do, you get the feedback from the people based on what's important to them. And I think that the asking has to be based on asking people how they feel, what they need, where are the gaps. Not so much about what we're doing right, but what are our opportunities for improvement? And when mm -hmm. we start to ask those questions and we're open to hearing the answers without retaliation, then we're able to adequately assess where we are and get a baseline before we can make a decision on whether or not we want to shift. Yeah, that's great. And I can see that working in a larger or midsize organization where you have, you know, 30 employees or a thousand people who are part of your organization. But can you get honest, anonymous feedback if you have a small organization like a church of 50 people or a really small business with a team of six people where there's really no anonymity? Like, how do you do it in a micro context? You know, it's interesting that you say that. But first of all, my answer is yes. And okay. I think you can do it in a family of four. And you know, it's interesting because I do my own personal assessment of my friend group and my kids to say, how am I doing as a mom or how am I doing as a friend? But sometimes you do have to bring in an unbiased individual in order to do that assessment. But it first starts with building, building that relationship of trust, Carrie. A lot of times people won't do it when it's not a larger pool because they're afraid they'll be found out. But when you bring in someone who has the opportunity to build a relationship and a rapport with that person first by being vulnerable and transparent, you will be surprised how quickly people open up. And from hmm. there, they can do the assessment for you, whether you're an organization of 10, a family of four, or an organization of 50 or a thousand. But it starts with building trust. So you're right. And oftentimes when you don't have that large organization, people do have some fear. But there's always a way in through another individual, starting with building trust and establishing relationship and then doing the assessment. How do you build trust? How do you do that? I think you build trust by doing exactly what we're doing. It's by being transparent and vulnerable. It's, a, it's about being open to share your fears and your mistakes. It's about allowing people to have differences of opinion without the fear of being canceled. 
And I think that when you open yourself up to people, even though it's uncomfortable, people begin to trust you because mm -hmm. they can relate. Because even though we're different, fundamentally, we're all the same. We all want to be happy. We all want to have opportunity and we all want love and we all feel hurt the same exact way. It might be a different transaction that hurt us. It might be a different situation in terms of who we love. But fundamentally, we all want the same thing. And when we start focusing on the similarities as opposed to the differences, the ability to connect is rapid. One of the questions I wish I had a dollar for every time someone asked me this question is like, Cheryl, I'm on board with what you said. Our team is pretty trusting, but I'll tell you what my problem is. It's the senior leader. Senior leader's not open, would never ask us that question. We're afraid, I'm going to use him, we're afraid to approach him. He's kind of toxic. He's either unaware of it or he's aware of it and doesn't care. What is your advice for someone who would say, we're all on board with you, but like it's that senior leader. Uh, what do you do in a case like that? I think there's a couple of things that um, you can do that I've had the privilege of seeing that works is first and foremost, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes, there mm -hmm. are going to be individuals who don't want to shift. And oftentimes people are afraid of change. Just because somebody's at the top doesn't mean that they have all the answers. People mm -hmm. are literally doing the best that they can. And we have an expectation of individuals that's unaligned with, it's disaligned with who they really are as an individual. But I think collectively as a group, we have power. But oftentimes we don't want to exercise the power because we're not in that position. Look, it is not about the job title. It's about the ability to make things happen. And when we align even at the next level and we have conversation with that individual about what's important for the organization and for that individual, and we can meet them in alignment with what they want, you'll be amazed at how people shift. And if you don't mind me saying this, Carrie, mm -hmm. look, when, when I'm approaching individuals, it's about what's in it for them. I mean, we started mm -hmm. this conversation off with, what is it about our nation? This is a nation about me. So when I am looking to create change or anyone out there and you're dealing with the person who's resistant, they have to know what's in it for them. I mean, why would they shift if they feel like they're already winning? So yeah. the approach is to help that person understand how they can win even more, how they can go to an even higher level, how it will benefit them and yield an even greater return. And when we take that approach versus trying to beat somebody down with what we believe is right, but we meet them where they are, people actually will open up their ears and start to hear you. And once they recognize there's a benefit, conversations can start. Okay, so I don't do this very often, and I don't know whether you're game to play or whether you do this in your consulting. But if you're open, why don't we do a bit of role play? I'm the out-of-touch, toxic boss that doesn't listen to anybody. You're the nervous employee knocking on my office door or sending an email or a text. I mean, you tell me what forum works best for this, and then you tell me how the conversation goes. Okay, are you, are you up for that? Does that sound fair? All right. All right. So I'm the uh, oblivious, obnoxious, toxic boss. Boom. Over to you. All right. Well, I'm walking into your office to have a conversation. Okay. And in that conversation, I wanted to share something with you. Hey, Sherelle, what do you need? I'm pretty busy here. What do you want? Oh, I wanted to talk to you about something. Do you like dogs? Yeah, uh, actually, I don't, but go ahead. <laughs> That's going to lose me so many. No, I'm not a dog fan. You're not a dog person? Uh, I have asthma. Mm -hmm. have asthma? Oh, well, that's too bad. 
Well, what I wanted to share with you is that I was walking down the street today and right in front of our office, I saw one of her employees completely just in a situation where they got hurt. And I wanted to make sure that you were aware of it. Were you aware of that? Uh, no, no, not at all. Well, I know how much you care about the way that people feel. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to make you aware of it because as the CEO of the organization, I wouldn't want you to be blindsided by a lawsuit or anything. So I wanted to have this lawsuit. Okay. Like what's going on? What happened? Well, what happened was the individual was outside of the building, but they are an employee. And as you know, on our property, you would be liable. And I'm not exactly sure of the details, but this is putting you and the organization at risk. So it might be something that you want to look into. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely. I'll check it out. Who would I talk to? Well, I think we should start with HR because mm -hmm. there's a problem with individuals that could cost the company a great deal of money or not feeling like they fit in or they're including. And as a result of that, they're forcing the HR department to address it. And or there's talk around the building that there might be a lawsuit. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for putting that on my radar. I really appreciate it. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just not a pet person. You know what I mean? So. No, it's fine. You know, I just wanted to know if you do. But what I really want you to know is that I got your back and I'm looking out for your blind spots. And if there's any way that I can support you to ensure that you're not at risk of taking any type of a loss, I would be happy to do that for you. Okay, we'll pause for just a moment. So what you did was you didn't talk about the problem. You started building trust. You made me aware of a situation. So that could be, hey, were you aware that something really something your boss doesn't know? that they're going to want to know. And now I kind of say, oh, Sherelle's a good person who has my back. Is that the idea? That's the idea. Oh, brilliant. And it's funny you start with, are you a dog person? Now I've, I've lost half my podcast listeners, maybe three quarters, because I'm not a pet person. Okay, I'm just not. I think dogs will make it into heaven. I've changed my mind on that, but it's just like, okay. I'm going to be petless. Oh yeah, I get in trouble for that. Mm -hmm. Whatever the angle is to your point, to build genuine trust. Now, what I am not talking mm -hmm. about is manipulation, code switching, or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. being somebody that you're not. What I am talking about is creating relationship. And once you can create relationship, it's sticky, right? Mm -hmm. Because that person knows, regardless of the fact that he may be white and really off put by somebody black or a black female, it mm -hmm. really doesn't matter. Everybody is aligned with somebody who cares about them. And when you start to create that immediately, now you have an opportunity to create some change. You have any? All right. No, this is super helpful. So let's assume, I, I could be reading into this. Tell me if I'm wrong. You've gone a couple rounds with me. You've let me know about the potential lawsuit. You've filled me in or said, hey, I noticed this in the company. I just went ahead and fixed it. Hope that's okay, et cetera. So now you're in my good books, but you got to have the awkward conversation because not only do I not like dogs, and again, apologies, um, but I'm still oblivious to everything and everyone. And the corporate culture is toxic. How do you have the conversation or the first step in the conversation with me? Do you want to play that role? Sure. All right, let's go. Carrie, I know how important it is that we're able to grow the organization. I was looking at the vision statement and I'm super excited about it. I have some ideas around how we can penetrate new industries and grow our top line revenue. Are you always awesome. talking about it? <laughs> always. Yeah. Go ahead. Fill me in. Well, there's a couple of industries that I recognize that we don't have very much market share. 
And part of that is the individuals who are trying to penetrate the industry aren't aligned with the industry leaders. I think we have an opportunity if we started to look at new industry leaders to come into the space to maximize those industries and get more market share and increase the top line. Do you want to hear about some strategies? Yeah, I was going to say, so what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, what I mean is that in the hair care product industry, what I'm finding is that the leaders don't necessarily align with our sales leaders, but okay. there's some top salespeople in that industry that are available and looking to jump ship. If we could grab one of them, we probably could get a return in about 90 days and that'll increase our market share significantly. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely open. That, that would be great. All right, great. I'll put together a deck for you and bring it back over to you, share with you where we have an opportunity to grow and make some introductions to you to some fabulous leaders who can penetrate our top line revenue and ultimately bring it down to the bottom. Okay, so break, this is really interesting. Once again, you're following the strategy, you're having the conversation without having the conversation. Exactly. It's about meeting the person where they are. So hair care, again, forgive my, my, and obviously I don't run a hair care company, but one of the big issues is, you know, in diversity, a lot of shampoos that you would see at a grocery store or a pharmacy, they're made for white people, right? That's what you're getting at. And you complain, it's like, why are our sales down and they're not doing well with non-whites, et cetera. And then you realize, oh, we don't actually make product. We don't have representation. It's a bunch of white men sitting around or white people trying to figure this out. Interesting. And that would apply to a church planter who's like, our community is diverse, but our church is not. Right. Could be a very similar thing. Is there ever a point or is there a point where you start to say, hey, the toxic, the culture is toxic? Or is there a point at which you just keep running this and before you know it, you've transformed the organization? Like, do you ever have to name the elephant in the room? I don't believe that you do. I mean, what is really? Okay, this is the surprise. Yeah, you already know that the culture is toxic. So why do we need to talk about it? Mm. Like, you know, I focus on the end game. So if the end game is to create a culture of belonging and inclusion, I just need to do the work to create it. Because ultimately, who is going to be upset about a higher yield? Nobody. Who's going to be upset about a higher level of retention? Everybody. Who's going to be upset when turnover starts to drop? You know, nobody. So when you start to bring to the table the business leaders' needs and you're meeting them where they are, and it is not about you, it is about Hmm. them. People open up their palms and they're ready to receive. But when we start to beat people down by trying to tell them and point out their deficiencies and their character and try and shift them to become somebody that they don't choose to be, then it's a loss. So why bother? It's a waste of time. The goal is to ensure that everybody wins. There shouldn't be the shift that only the underrepresented win. And so then you have those individuals that are in the majority afraid that they're going to take a loss. But everybody Mm. should win. You know, cultural transformation is about the win for every person involved. And I think that sometimes we... um, we make a mistake by not taking everybody into consideration. Now, don't misunderstand me as an African-American woman, and we can talk about it if you like. Um, there's definite, there was definitely inequity. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, this is about creating meaningful change. 
And where there's value, there can be change. Now, there's so much more to be spoke about. And I don't want the listeners to think, oh, my gosh, she must be out of her mind. She's not speaking on our behalf. I'm not out of my mind. And I do understand that there are specific things that we need to do, but the approach needs to be sticky. I'm not interested in giving opportunity only to lose it. I'm interested in giving opportunity and for it to continue to grow and grow and grow into perpetuity. And so we've got to be strategic about how we do that. See, this is a paradigm shift because it's so different than the headlines, than the culture wars in social media. And it feels like a lot of people can get on board. You have... Um, practice this at the highest corporate levels, the C-suites of massive companies and organizations. Let's go back. Can we go back a couple of decades? Sure. What was the situation like then? And what did that feel like as a Black woman? And how has it changed today, if it's changed much at all? It was, it was scary and it was hard. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I, um, I've been in leadership most of my life, so I'm very grateful and blessed, but I've also been uniquely different from all of my cohorts and counterparts. I was always up until my last stint in a fintech, the only African-American and the only woman at the top. So mm -hmm. it was different. The conversations were different. There were situations where I was discounted or my voice didn't matter. And because I didn't understand what I needed to do, there were times where I operated like a bull in the china shop or I felt mm. like I needed to force my way through. But as I emotionally matured and understood the value added, then I understood the strategy that I needed to use in order to not only yield the return that I was able to bring as an organizational leader, but to be able to open the doors for others who wouldn't necessarily have an opportunity. Because with power comes the ability to create change. And so when you have an opportunity where you're at the top and you're yielding the results that the organization needs, now you can open the doors for others. And that was the strategy. And ultimately, I was able to bring in so many other African-Americans into organizations in which I work and create an opportunity for their lives and their families' lives to change. Individuals of different genders and sexual preferences so that there was an opportunity, but they were all A players. And at the end of the day, this is America. And so in America, it is about the dollar bill. And when people are coming and they are A players and they are creating what most Americans want, which is the yield of return, people don't see color. They see green. And it is, <laughs> it's and it's unfortunate. And it's not necessarily my life cadence. But ultimately, if we want people to have an opportunity in organizations and we're not running them, we've got to do what it takes not compromise ourselves, but create opportunity and then create some change. If you don't mind without specifically naming names, what were some of the most difficult conversations or situations you've been put in when you've been in those meetings, maybe particularly in the early days? Um, I think some of the most difficult conversations that I have been in are conversations where I've been asked to change my approach in terms of how I entree into a conversation. For example, I was told, well, before you say anything negative, give us three positives. Mm -hmm. Or before I've been asked to code switch, I've been asked to show up in a way that was more comfortable for the listener and not because of my tone or my style um, was not appropriate, but because I was different from the listeners. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that you were asking me to be who somebody else needed me to be. And I'm not interested in that. 
there was a time when I tried to do that earlier in my create career, but it created a level of discomfort for me and a high level of stress. And so I had to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And so does everybody else in the room. And as long as we're doing it with grace and humility and we're professional and what we're bringing to the table is meaningful, then we should be able to do that and be ourselves because that's what inclusion is all about. Can we talk about code switching? We had Albert Tate on this podcast and we had a good deep dive into code switching but I'd love to know it from your perspective. First, can you define it? And then just so people can recognize it when it happens, what is code switching and how does it show up? So I'm not giving a definition that comes out of the dictionary. What I'm saying is what it is to me and what I have witnessed. Mm -hmm. And code switching is when you convert into becoming who you believe the audience needs you to be in order to fit in or get what you want. And so you're showing up in alignment with what you believe other people expect of you versus who you truly are. And when you're doing that, it's actually uncomfortable. Mm. So when you are code switching, um, that's what it is to me. Yeah. And, and what's the second question, Gary? Oh, just examples of when you felt the pressure or were specifically asked to code switch and what that involved. Well, um, I've never been good at it. (laughs) When I moved to South Orange County and I was told about being politically correct, I didn't know what that meant. I mean, the first thing I said was politically correct. So does that mean you're asking me to lie? Like, what does that mean? Because I was raised that you mean what you say and you say what you mean. Where were you raised? I was was born and raised in Los Angeles, moved to Cerritos um, and went to college at UCLA. Yeah. Uh, and ended up in, in um, Orange County after I graduated from college. Gotcha. So not a lot of geography, but a huge cultural difference. Yeah. A huge cultural difference in terms of ethnicity. Yeah. As an African-American, it's you speak truth. You mm. say what you mean. You don't say so. You don't sugarcoat. Now, I did have to learn more professionalism around my dad <laughs> and my cadence. But the words that come out of my mouth need to be the truth. So being asked to say something that's expected versus to tell the truth was just not within my wheelhouse. It's like, I'm not doing that. Um, And I've always led with, look, I will sacrifice the relationship to save you. So you might not want to hear it, but I am going to be looking out for your blind spots. But what I found is it earned me trust. Mm. And so the things I needed to work on in terms of being a more effective leader in my communication was something that I embarked upon myself, but code switching is just not in my wheelhouse. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. And I, I hear you on that. Um, I want to nuance it a little bit more. How do you know the difference between code switching and fitting into a culture? So I'll give you now I'm a white male. All right. When I was in law uh, years ago, I remember I had to go out and get suits. Well, I was still a student. I didn't have a big budget but there were only a couple of colors of suits that you could have. You could have gray, you could have navy, or occasionally you could have black. And that was about it. And it had to be a suit. Now, things have changed a little bit since then. I remember I got a dark green suit, really dark green. Oh yeah, exactly. And it was kind of like, whoa, you're pushing the envelope, which sounds ridiculous. But I was kind of pushing the envelope. And that, you know, even in podcasting, there's conventions, there are ways you do things how do you know the difference between your, when you're switching codes, code switching, and when, you know, as obviously you have to in a C-suite, you became a professional woman, 
right? What's the difference in your mind? You know, I'm not suggesting that people don't need to code switch to get to where they want to be. I think it's important that we stay true to who we are. But Mm -hmm. I know that some people will code switch to your point in order to fit in, in order to maybe make the next move as part of the strategy. And I think that the difference in code switching is understanding your audience and staying true to your authenticity but maybe trying to meet them where they are in terms of your style of talk, your approach at a particular situation or solving a particular problem. And I think that some individuals feel that that's necessary because they don't believe that who they are is enough. Mm, And so because we don't think that who we are is enough, we believe that we have to be who somebody else wants us to be, which is Mm. why once I came to the realization that I needed to shift that insecurity and the confidence and that fear and the courage because I am enough. I don't need to do that. I may Mm. not be accepted by everyone, but for those who are willing to accept somebody who's uniquely different, they're going to be blessed. And I had to get comfortable with who I am and start to show up in my authentic self. That's a helpful distinction. Yeah, it does. That's a really helpful distinction because it's, it's not, grading against your identity or who you were created to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I mean, what you're sharing earlier in that role play situation we did reminded me a lot. It was brilliant, by the way. I wasn't expecting that at all. I thought you'd have the conversation with me, the conversation, right? But it's a little bit like uh, Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, or what Zig Ziglar said, if you help enough people get what they want, you'll eventually get what you want. It's just really, really a a solid approach. One of the things uh, I read about you is you say that 25 years in top firms, including a lot of accounting firms and fintech, et cetera, gave you a graduate degree in what not to do. What are some common mistakes you've seen leaders make? Uh, What should you not do if you want a healthy culture? I think what you should never do is avoid telling the truth. Mm. I think there are too many people at the top specifically, especially when you're working for a strong leader that become yes people or they're agreeing or they're not saying anything. I don't think that that is a pillar of leadership. Mm. I think that leaders must be authentic. Now, there's a way to go about um, communicating that's effective and that's going to yield a high return. And doing that for the goal of understanding, not necessarily agreeing, but for someone to stay silent and call themselves a leader, in my opinion, is not leadership. I think that one of the other things that we cannot do in leadership is not create a space where everybody has a seat and a voice at the table. I think that as a leader, our responsibility is to move others forward. And as we are growing the organization, we have a responsibility to lead and create opportunity for others. And so one of the things that I don't believe leaders should do is position the organization's success only for themselves. Because Mm. when everybody wins, as you mentioned earlier, you continue to win. And so I just think that's something that you can't do. And I think you also have to be conscious of your leadership style. One of the things that we cannot do is lead in alignment with how somebody else leads. We've got to tap into our own unique brand, understand who we are, what is the problem that we solve, What are the pain points that we can help mitigate? And once we get comfortable with our purpose and our problem that we solve, then we can be our own self and be Mm. authentic. And it's amazing how much more effective you will be and how much more peace you will have and how much more joy you will be able to experience as a leader. So the things I've learned not to do is 
Don't fake and shake and pretend to be somebody that you're not. Make <laughs> space and room at the table for others, right? And share the wealth. I mean, there's enough for all of us, but there's so many things that we can talk about as it relates to what I've learned not to do. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so um, I want to drill down on a few other things. You've touched on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but there's also a lot of views. It's a, it's a hot topic right now. What are some misconceptions that people have about DEI and some misunderstandings? I think there's misconceptions and misunderstandings on everyone's part. I think Mm -hmm. that for those of us who haven't been given the opportunity, we believe it's solely because of racism. I think for those who are afraid to even delve into it, it's because of fear of getting it wrong, not just because people are racist. I'm going to just set the racist aside because we can't solve that problem. And I don't think that we need to be putting our effort into trying to convert someone from being a racist. If somebody's a racist, they're racist. But what we can do is create opportunity for everyone by having clarifying conversations and letting guard down. But oftentimes we can't get there because we're afraid. You know, we walk into a situation. I was speaking with 60 CEOs in a conversation. The first thing I asked was, how many people in here are afraid? Nobody raised their hand. Then I said, how many of you know whether you should call me Black or African-American? Nobody raised their hand. And I said, that's because you're all afraid. Now, now that we understand that everybody in the room has the same issue, we all have fear. Let's talk about how that we can get past that. You know, the bottom line is we need to meet each other where we are, as you hear me say. We need to give each other grace and we need to understand one another. And that's through asking questions. But when people feel like they're going to be attacked for not doing it sooner or not doing the right thing, or people feel like they're not good enough and they don't have the opportunity, we can't meet. So when I'm looking at approaching DEI, it's about diversity of thought. It's not just about black versus white or gay versus straight or male versus female. It is about diversity of thought. Because look, I'm a COO. I can be with a white male COO, an Asian female COO, a Hispanic male COO. And just because we look different doesn't mean it's diverse because we all think the same. So Mm. diversity is about diversity of thought. It's about bringing different opinions, being comfortable having conversations of disagreement without the fear of cancellation and being willing to shift the culture. And the other thing I'll say is if somebody is embarking upon diversity, one of the things we can't say is let's hire them. They fit the culture because diversity means you want cultural disruption. You want people who are different because the more you have Diverse thoughts around the table, the more somebody's looking out for your blind spots, the less mistakes you're going to make, the higher yield you return. Okay, there's a lot there. How do you get over your fear? Because I agree, there's a lot of white people who want to have the conversation, but are afraid to have it. What are some tips about how to broker that? And maybe you've had it the wrong way or said the wrong term, gotten a bunch of angry stuff on their social or in their inbox or people poking them on the way out of the building and they're like, okay, that's it. I'm done. How, how do you get past that fear? I think the key is being open to have what I call clarifying conversations. In mm. other words, asking questions. I mean, there are going to be people as a result of this podcast that might not like what I say. That's mm. scary for me because my intent is all good. But when someone attacks me or somebody doesn't agree with me, then I seek to understand their opinion. 
just because people have differences of opinion doesn't mean that we don't want the same thing. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks differently. So one of the ways that I get over fear is I seek to understand the individuals by which I may not be comfortable with or around, or we may have differences of opinion. And we level the playing field that we don't have to always agree. I think that some people are afraid of bringing different cultures, races, genders, sexual preferences into the space because they may not necessarily agree with the principles by which they believe people live. But the goal is not about whether or not we agree. It's about creating a space, opportunity, a seat, and a voice at the table for everybody. I don't have to agree with your lifestyle, but what I do have to do is not deny you an opportunity because I don't agree. So to get over that fear is to be comfortable knowing that I just want to understand and I want to be able to open the door without being forced to have to be who you want me to be. And that goes on all sides. It goes back to me being a black woman. Why do I have to communicate the way you communicate? Why do I have to dress the way you want me to dress? Why can't I just be who I am as long as I'm graceful and I'm professional and I'm qualified to do my job? And so once we understand that we don't have to agree with one another, but we shouldn't deny somebody of something because of fear. And part of that fear also that we can get over is to learn how we won't take a loss. I mean, many people are afraid because they're going to lose. Mm -hmm. So when they don't understand how creating opportunity isn't going to negatively impact them, then they have a belief system in their mind They've conjured up a result and they're reacting to it and nothing's even happened. So having those conversations helps to mitigate some of that fear. So I say having clarifying conversations is yeah. the start. Like it, for those CEOs just to say, well, yeah, I'll be the one who puts up my hand and say, do you prefer to be called black or African-American? Like which one? Right. And that's I was perfectly saying, fine. You're right. And I might be a person that say it doesn't really matter. Somebody else might say, well, I prefer to be called black. Somebody else might say, I prefer to be called African-American, but that fear is gone as soon as you ask the question. Yeah. Diversity of thought. That's a really interesting paradigm for diversity. So if you're a church leader listening, 85% chance your church is plateaued or declining. And I am convinced that part of that is a lack of diversity of thought. Some of that is just, you have the same people who've lived in the same bubble for a long time trying to solve the same problems and being very uncreative and maybe now occasionally running to chat GPT for some solutions. But, you know, to me, diversity of thinking has been, you know, well, let's learn from business. Let's learn from the arts. Let's learn from, I have a newsletter called On the Rise. And, you know, every week I send out stuff from all kinds of fields that I'm learning of. It's just like stimulate your mind. The same level of thinking that created the problem cannot solve it. But you're saying, that that also applies to getting different voices around the table. So let's talk about what that looks like in practical terms, Sherelle. So what diversity of thought looks like is consistent with what you said in terms of having the same people around you giving you the same advice, or you're the only person giving your per yourself advice. <laughs> <laughs> that, that happens way more than people admit. Exactly. It's like more of my thinking, now for more exactly. of my thinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but diversity of thought is it's intentional and it's strategic. 
In other Mm -hmm. words, when I'm making a decision, I have someone who is more experienced in a particular area than I am. I always have someone that's significantly younger that's going to bring a level Mm -hmm. of creativity that I don't have. I'm going to have a younger gentleman. I'm going to have an older white person. You know, I am going to ensure that my bench strength is aligned with individuals that are different from me. And I'm going to give those individuals permission to tell me the truth about myself. In Mm. order to have real diversity of thought, people need to feel safe enough to object. That's when you've conquered it. So when I invite A players, not just anybody, but A players, other high-performing leaders that think differently from me and that are unafraid to tell me the truth about myself, then I'm guaranteed to win. But that's how you start to move that into your space. It's not just your normal friend pool, you know, your family. It's individuals that you're going to handpick that you admire. I love to meet the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. I love to meet some church leaders, some white male of a large church. I love to meet an Asian individual that's leading in technology. Those are individuals that bring something to the table completely different than me. And collectively, we are a firehouse. And so doing that and creating that bench strength, There's nothing that you can't do with diversity of thought because everybody has a different perspective and you will not be blindsided. Now you have long-term success. You grow your church and you grow your business. You've mentioned A players a couple of times. How do you assess or determine if someone is an A player? For me, first, you have to know your own leadership style. You know, I have an amazing friend, um, Dr. Karen Seaman McBride, who speaks on leadership styles. And when you know your leadership style, so I'm a strategic helper. I'm a person who is very strategic, but I also like to help. Hence, obviously what I do. But when you start to think about the A players, A, they have to be qualified and you're going to define qualifications based on whatever the field of study that they're going to be operating Mm -hmm. in, whatever that role is, but also what do you need on your bench? So if I'm a strategist in some roles like marketing, I'm going to need a doer. I don't need another person who is just a helper because that means they're going to just do what I say. If I need a helper, maybe for an assistant, then I need that person. But everybody has to have a high level of qualifications. In other words, they have either the experience are the ability to learn swiftly, that they're Mm -hmm. able to manage with your personality because how you interact with people is important and that they have the confidence to have conflicting or conversations of disagreement with you. If you Mm -hmm. are bringing people to your bench that is second in command or that you're relying on and they're intimidated by you, then that is not an A player. You need players that are willing to tell you the truth. Qualified, skilled, experienced, but not intimidated, confident, and then have the right leadership style. Whether you need somebody, a strategist, you need a doer, you need a helper, or you need a thinker. And that's another conversation for a different day. Yeah, yeah. The of it is, you know, to identify your A players, they've got to be qualified and they have to be confident and willing to be honest with you, no matter what. Yeah, that, that, that is threatening to a lot of leaders. And it's one of the hidden reasons I think so many organizations stay small. So we talked a little bit about DEI. We talked about diversity of thought. Um, Part of the tension and sometimes the resistance you see to DEI is geographic. In other words, tends to be a bigger issue on the coasts than it does in middle America or in the South. 
even though it's a very racially diverse area, there's just a different thinking. But some of that is also demographic, right? Like if you think about it, it's a big difference between boomers and Gen X and younger millennials and Gen Z on this issue. What are you seeing as table stakes, non-negotiables with Gen Zs and younger millennials when it comes to diversity? It's interesting because I think that's actually a non-negotiable. I mean, mm-hmm. younger generation are expecting a culture of inclusion and belonging. It is a non-negotiable. And not only is it about things that we spoke on in terms of race and culture and sexual preference and gender, but they're expecting for you to care about them and their mental health. And so mm-hmm. the way that we lead those who are 55 and above, which would include myself, um, has to shift. And it's difficult because, I mean, quite frankly, when I entered the workplace, nobody cared about how I felt. <laughs> it was heads down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like, hey, you're two minutes late. What's going on? Come on, Cheryl. Exactly. I'm Not exactly. that you would be, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Exactly. So I think when you say, what are some of the differences? Our younger generation are expecting to go into an organization where people matter. And that is mm. not just about the bottom line and what's in it for the organization. So that's the first thing. And you mentioned about the demographics. Yes, it's challenging in certain areas of the of the world because you don't have a lot of diversity. But how many of us to the point of this podcast are operating virtually? I mean, there mm-hmm. are diverse people all around the nation, and most of us are operating in a hybrid environment. So if we really want to infuse cultural transformation, we can find people all over. In California, I can hire somebody in Oklahoma, and in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. I can hire somebody in California. So if we want cultural transformation, it's definitely possible. Yeah. What would you say to leaders who um, maybe are not living in the reality that Gen Z is? Like, what's the wake up call for a boomer or older Gen X leader who's living in a very uh, monosyllabic, monocultural world? What would what's the wake up call for him or her? I think it depends on their end game, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are individuals who don't want to shift. Now, as a Christian, my end game is impact and it's nationwide Mm. impact, right? So that means that it's all people. If there's one life that I can change, I'm not selective on the lives that I change. I want to change every person that's open to be better, to be a more high performing leader, a higher performing leader, excuse me. So for individuals that are, you know, stuck in their own ways, they are living in a bubble, they haven't had the opportunity to see what's available to them, my question would be, what's your end game? And once we get clear on what that is, if the end game is to create impact for all people, is if it's to lead with love for everyone, then how do we shift? And one of the first things that we have to do is we have to make the decision, as I said earlier, to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And we have to invite conversations into our space in order to learn for the sake of understanding. And we have to also recognize that We don't have to always be right. The goal is just that we do the right thing. And if you don't know how to do it, as I say often, hashtag I got you, because sometimes you got to seek help. You have to Mm -hmm. ask somebody to walk alongside of you to take you to the next level of where God has called you to be. Sometimes we don't have all of the tools and we need support. So I believe in my research, I came across this stat. And if you need to nuance it, let me know. But your staff retention rate is 95%. Is that correct? It has been in some organizations and uh-huh. in some it has not. 
You know, I think in order to build a high retention rate of staff, when you move into organizations and you understand it's about culture, when you start to create that best place to work, not only will people stay with you, but they will move with you from company to company. <laughs> Personally, attest to that because I've moved to a couple of companies and in those moves, I've taken more than dozens of people with me. So okay. the key is that um, in order to retain your talent to your question earlier, you have to meet the people where they are mm. and we have to understand that it's not just about us. And so creating a space where people know that they matter, even when you have high stakes, you have high expectations of individuals, they will still perform for you, even when it's hard, but the loyalty is with you because they trust you. And when people trust you because they know that you care about them, then people stay with you and they will follow you wherever you go. And they will give you grace when you're not the best version of yourself. But mm. the key is, it's because they know that they matter. And I think that's what's most important. One of the things I had to learn is that the most precious asset in my life is people. Mm. And I didn't always lead with that. And so understanding that now I recognize that there were individuals who really cared about me and I didn't show up with leadership of care. And so now that I have emotionally matured, I encourage every leader to lead with care. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going, that's going to bifurcate the responsibilities of getting a job done. We're running an organization and we have expectations. But, and sometimes we have to let people go. But you'd be amazed at how many people I've let go and have asked to come back once they've gotten better. So the key is knowing that even if you're ushering someone out of the door to the next opportunity for them, they knew you cared about them throughout that process. And once you can do that, your retention, People will stay with you. They will follow you. They will give you great reviews and they will trust you. Yeah. In addition to what we talked about already, are there other keys to creating that kind of loyalty and retention and obviously delight, I would assume, with those key employees to have a retention rate that can peak at 95%? You know, one of the things I can do is tell you what not to do because I can tell you okay. all the things did wrong in a different conversation. Let's do it. Okay. But, but what I would say is that first it starts with even how we attract our talent and in our languaging and things like our offerings and our personnel manuals, just in our documentation is communicating with people based on where they are. And for a lot of us leaders that are older, sometimes that seems difficult. And so we have to make sure going back to your bench strength, that depending on the positions that someone is playing in the game, the goal is not to just get to the championship, but it's to win the Super Bowl. And so you want to have players that can execute the plays in order for you to win. So if we're going to be creating that, then we want to do that at the first experience of the employee. And that's through the interview process and how they come in and making sure that we have an environment where they can learn and they thrive. And that is not just about what they can do for us, but what we can do for them, because that's how you start to build trust. Not only all of the courses that I'm offering you in order to do your job better, but all of the things that I'm offering you in order for you to become a better leader for yourself. And so we have to diversify our learning and development. We want to have programs within our organization so that people have someone that they can go to. We want to have mentorships and sponsors. We want to be able to have these clarifying conversations where people feel included and belong. And we want to have career tracks for individuals so that they can grow, even if it means that they're going to grow their way out of our organization and step into the next one. And when we position people to win and our organization wins, you're building trust. 
And of course, there's a myriad of specific things that we can talk about. I'm sure we don't have enough time to do that. But by asking those questions, creating that culture, starting with how you entree someone into the relationship and then maintaining that. And I will also say as a leader of an organization, get to know your people. I mean, even if it's just meeting with them periodically, take time to reach out to somebody and see how they're doing, how they're feeling. You will be amazed at how long and how far a five minute conversation will go for you. But be genuine and be authentic and be willing to share some of your missteps. And that's how you start to begin to build trust. A lot of leaders struggle, and I see two worlds. There's performance-driven leaders where it's all about the bottom line, your KPIs, go, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. And then you see this in the nonprofit and church world. A lot of people, they're just super pastoral. How are you doing? How are you doing? But they never ask you what you're doing or they never call you to account. And I think a lot of leaders almost see attention that, you know, for the driven leader, if I really care about you, I might soften the results. And for the person who's very pastoral in nature, it's like, well, if I start pushing on your KPIs, I'm not being a nice human and you might leave. How would you counsel each of those polls? Yeah, I think that it is an integration of both. Mm -hmm. I think that Mm -hmm. an effective leader has to have the ability to lead with both. A, I don't believe that we have to dilute or minimize our performance expectations in order to get along with people. I think that Mm -hmm. what we need to do is be clear. And oftentimes when we entree into relationships, we're not clear of our expectations. That's the first start of trust. You know, people don't always have to like what we say, but when we are honest with people and they don't feel manipulated later, trust is built. So Mm -hmm. when someone comes into our organization and we have expectations of performance, we need to be clear of those expectations. And then we need to ensure that they have the tools to meet those expectations. And we're going to check in with them, not just about the performance of the role, but who they are as people. And I believe that we can do both. We can be caring leaders with high expectations that yield a high return for the organization. And that's accomplishable. We don't have to compromise one for the other. Well, I'll tell you, I've had a few light bulb moments in this conversation. Anything else you would like to share with leaders today, Sherelle? You know, the the thing that I would like to share with leaders is that leading with inclusion and belonging is like the stock market. You know, we know that historically it's been proven that it always yields a high return. Mm. But the way you get the highest return is through diversification of investment. Mm. And when you diversify your investment, you may not always win immediately, but the long term play always yields a high return. And really, that's what life is all about. And so when we start talking about diversity, inclusion and belonging, just think about the long term return not only for you, but for everybody involved. And if we can start looking at it that way, asking more questions, seeking to get a level of understanding, getting somebody on your bench that can walk you through that discomfort of shifting and changing and focus on DEI as a cultural transformation and not just an initiative, I guarantee you, you're going to not just get to the, the championship game, but you're going to win that NBA <laughs> Super Bowl. I guarantee you. And if you don't know how to do it, I'm telling you, hashtag, I got you. So whatever I can do to, to support you or your audience, I'm happy to do that. That's great. Where can people find you online these days? Well, people can find me online on my website, ShereleJackson.com. And or email me, Sherelle at ShereleJackson.com. Awesome. 
Sherelle, it's been a delight having this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carrie, for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you. Man, we covered a lot there. And if you want more, I've got show notes for you at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 573. Also, we have transcripts of the entire episode as well. So coming up next time, man, I'm excited. We've got JJ Vasquez. He's a church planter and Warren Bird, uh, one of the most prolific church statisticians, analysts, uh, data people I know. And we're going to talk about the new math of church plants, how church planting is changing, and what happens when Superman dies. I love that part of the conversation. Here's an excerpt. Well, it tells you there's going to be a parting of the way because a different study um, that's done every five years in the year 2000 found that the average size of a U.S. church was 160. In the year 05, it was less. In the year 2010, it was less. In the year 2015, it was less. In the year 2020, the survey was done just before the pandemic, and the average U.S. congregation size was 60 people. I read that, and I almost couldn't believe it. That's not sustainable financially, full-time pastor-wise, maintaining a building. I mean, it's just huge implications, and that's why— mergers and new churches and everything else are are balancing that out. Uh, All the while, many denominations and others are saying, here, let us help you figure out how do you do revitalization and turnaround. If you subscribe, you get that automatically. And I would encourage you to do that. You know, the average person subscribes to about seven podcasts and we are privileged to have tens of thousands of you subscribe to this podcast and millions of downloads. And uh, if you are not yet a subscriber, please do that. Make us one of your seven or 10 or whatever you listen to. I subscribe to a few more than that, but I only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. And if you enjoy this episode, share the love. Uh, Let other people know. Share a link on your social or text the link to your friends and and let us know. You can tag me. I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram. Also coming up, we have Horst Schultze coming back, Seth Godin, Dr. Henry Cloud. We've got Eric Peterson. He is Eugene Peterson's son and Wynn Collier. Also coming up, John Gordon. Who else have we got? We've got, uh, let's see, Judah and Chelsea Smith, Sharon McMahon. A lot of you know her as Sharon Says So on Instagram and online. Richard Foster, Miroslav Wolf, Jenny Katrin, and a whole lot more. All that you get for free when you subscribe. And thank you so much for doing that. And I've got one more thing because you listen to the end. If you haven't yet downloaded your free copy of the Preaching Cheat Sheet, go to preachingcheatsheet.com. If you communicate in any way, whether you're casting vision to staff, whether you're communicating as a CEO, or of course, if you're a preacher or a public speaker, I've combined four decades of tips on how to be a better communicator at preachingcheatsheet.com. It's yours for free. So go to preachingcheatsheet.com. The link is also available in the show notes, but why don't you just type it in right now, preachingcheatsheet.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I so love the privilege of doing this with you. And when you share this podcast, we grow and we get to do it again next time. So thank you for doing that. And I hope our time together today helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing. 